0: This is The Guardian. As Labour meets for its annual party conference, we're doing something a little bit different. For the next two episodes, we're handing over to our political correspondent, Kieran Stacey. He'll be taking us back to the last time the Labour Party were on the cusp of retaking power a year out from an election, and hearing how history has been written by Labour's election winners the people around Tony Blair at the time and he'll be asking what if anything can the current Labour leadership learn
1: finding your perfect home was hard but thanks to burrow furnishing it has never been easier
2: Once upon a time, Keir Starmer was a very different kind of Labour politician. He was an ally of Jeremy Corbyn and unapologetically a man of the left. But over the last year, he seems to have moved closer and closer to a very different former Labour leader.
3: Today, after four defeats, just as in 1997, we have new leadership and a renewed sense of purpose and mission.
2: It's not just that Tony Blair has started to appear on Labour Party videos again.
3: Keir Starmer has shown strength, determination and intelligence in setting Labour back on a winning path.
2: All that Starmer is speaking at conferences organised by the Tony Blair Institute.
3: Thank you so much for, for, for the speech. Uh, before we get on to the substance, how, how are you enjoying Prime Minister's questions?
0: <laughs> I'm a bit out of
4: practice. <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: They're even starting to sound the same.
3: Ask me my three main priorities for government, and I tell you, education, education, and education. We need three things. Growth, growth, growth. The Labour government today is not the political arm of anyone other than the British people. Once again the political wing of the British people.
2: In a way, it's obvious why Starmer wants to copy Blair. Labour's landslide victory in 1997 provides a blueprint for how the party can win after more than a decade in opposition. But 1997, and what came before it, is shrouded in myth-making and false memories. So I thought, why not find out what really happened in the year running up to the 1997 election from those closest to Blair themselves? Over the last few weeks, I've been talking to some of the people who made it happen. And they told me the real story of what happened in 1996. It was a year that changed Britain forever. From The Guardian, I'm Kieran Stacey. Today in Focus. Labour and what it takes to win an election. Part 1.
5: It's, home, it's,
2: it's the mid-1990s. Britain was feeling pretty good about itself. England is hosting Euro 96 and is falling in love with football all over again.
0: Oh, here's Gascoyne. Gascoy, you can finish it here!
2: it's the height of Britpop. Two of Britain's most
3: popular pop groups have begun the biggest chart war in 30 years.
0: A morning suit can be avoided.
2: There's this new thing around.
0: It all comes down to computers communicating. And in fact, that's already happening on something called the internet that anyone in the world... With
2: but things are not going so well for everyone.
0: Tim
6: Yeo, the environment minister who fathered a child outside his marriage, has resigned. Another Conservative from MP has resigned from a government post. The Sunday Times said two Tory MPs
3: had agreed to take money for asking questions.
2: John Major's Conservative Party's been in power for 17 years. It's mired in tabloid scandals, it's exhausted and they're training badly in the polls.
7: The 21-seat majority with which John Major came to power effectively disappeared today. Not
2: with a- We're a year out from an election. And more than 20 points ahead in the polls, you would have expected Labour at this point to have been buoyant. But it turns out they weren't. Not at all. Did it feel like you were ready a year or so out from the election? Can you remember?
5: I felt scarred from all the times we'd lost.
2: That's Harriet Harman. In 1996, she was the shadow Social Security Secretary. And like many in Labour, she was a veteran of losing campaigns. Now she's a backbench MP and she was speaking to me from her office high up in Portcullis House next to the River Thames.
5: Although the polls were incredibly good and everybody was saying you are going to be sailing into government, and although most Tory MPs had given up and were saying you're going to sail into government, you know, we'd failed in so many elections in 79... On and on.
6: Over at Conservative Party headquarters, naturally, there's a feeling of
3: elation. Mrs Thatcher, accompanied by her husband Dennis, prepares to leave for the palace. The Labour seats that fell to the Tories, and there were a lot of them in London and the South East, 15.
5: 83.
3: That is the face of Margaret Thatcher, if you didn't recognise it. And Thatcher back at number 10.
0: 87. Let's have a look at this morning's uh, newspapers, see what they're saying. The Daily Mail, Maggie's hat trick.
5: 92.
7: On our latest forecast with 331,
6: that would be a conservative majority of 11. And now they've scored the hat trick plus one
7: uh, and beaten the record for this century. There's John Major with the predicted majority of...
2: That was election night 1992. It was the memory which came up more than any other in all the conversations I had.
1: We'd never... Felt we were completely ready. That sort of, you know, we're ready for the off, we've done everything we need to do, everything is done and dusted. That point never arose at any stage before the election in 97. And I think you've got to understand that for those of us who were centrally involved in the campaign, all our worries and our anxieties about the election just can be summed up in one word or one way, and that is 1992.
2: And that's Peter, now Lord Mandelson. Uh, he was in charge of running the 1997 campaign.
1: The result of that was like a sort of big black dark cloud hung over us throughout the 1990s. It created two things. One, a deep abiding fear of 1992 happening again. And secondly, an absolute determination not to allow it to do so.
2: Mannison was absolutely central at this time. He was working in Blair's office with the fellow strategist, the late Philip Gould, and of course, the head of communications, Alastair Campbell. In Gould's book, he says that they went into 1996 with a very Blairite mantra, reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. How important was reassurance for you during that time? And why were you so obsessed with that?
7: Well, it's interesting. I've forgotten that Philip had said that. I'm not sure that's quite right. I think we were trying something even more tricky, which was reassurance alongside the promise of radical change. So we were basically saying new Labour is an agent of change. We want to change the party and we want to change the country and we want that change to be big. But at the same time, there were certain issues around which reassurance was very, very important.
2: The reassurance part of that is exactly the blueprint Starmer seems to be following. And former policies are being junked all the time. Either they're too expensive or uh, they're too unpopular. Uh, while he and his shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, insist they're not going to raise income or wealth taxes, a bit like Blair did at that time. But as I spoke to them, those around Blair in 1996 and 97 say this wasn't all that was going on. They had a pretty substantial policy platform too, and they were willing to take political risks. Everything
1: that we said and did was done within a frame of the following. The future, not the past. The many, not the few. Leadership, not
3: drift. For all the people, or for a few, that is the difference between us and the Conservative Party that governs Britain today. That is the choice before us. That is the challenge. ...of the 21st century.
1: And our campaign and our communications and our policies, everything, everything that we said and did, everything that we presented from that campaign, basically was about those three things. The future, not the past. Many, not the few. Leadership, not drift.
2: You obviously had those themes, but you were going through this policy formation process. Did you feel like you had a raft of policy there ready for government? Or did it feel like you were still scrambling to to get your concrete offer ready for, for the voters?
1: I think we were still scrambling around. I mean, <laughs> the thing I remember most of that period was Tony's restlessness and impatience. He didn't really like all the policy development that had taken place before. He wanted something that was really modern, really forward-looking. He wanted rethinks in all sorts of different policy areas.
6: Well, Tony gave me a very clear instruction when he hired me in June of 1994, and he said, look, you've got to get rid of the policies that are going to lose us votes. He called that bomb disposal. And you've got to find the policies that will come to symbolize our political project, which is to change the country, not just to change the Labour Party, and also carry us through one term
2: of government. You might recognise that voice. That was, at the time, the man who was tasked with coming up with the policies and writing the election manifesto, a 31-year-old whiz kid with the nickname Brains. Now he's better known as David Miliband. So tell us about some of these bombs that you had to dispose of then. Can you remember any specific policies you had to junk? And what was was it difficult to, to get that through a party which had previously supported those?
6: Well, for my generation, we'd seen that in the heat of an election campaign in 1992, different answers about child benefit and national insurance can blow up in a very bad way. And so one of the things that Tony's legal training, I think, really helped him with was really driving into policy detail to make sure it wasn't going to blow up. Tony Blair has set out the main policies on which Labour will fight the general election. Gone are Labour's past commitments to uprate pensions in line with earnings, to raise child benefit and increase national insurance contributions. In are the expected commitments to a minimum wage. The social chapter, a Scottish parliament. We announced that the minimum wage would be set by a low pay commission, for example. We said there would be a referendum on devolution in Scotland. And those were ways of trying to take the risk out of a a Labour vote, because we'd been out of power then uh, 17, 18 years.
2: Okay, so here's a taste of what they mean by radical but with reassurance. You introduce a minimum wage for the first time, but you also set up an independent body to decide how much it should be. You set up a parliament in Scotland, but it has to be approved by a people's vote first. But agreeing all of this was no easy process. And in fact, if the people I spoke to agreed on one thing about 1996, it was on how much they had disagreed.
7: There were times when I'm observing in my diary that we never seem to be in a position where all of us are kind of getting on well, there's always something going on. It might be Prescott and Robin Cook, it might be Gordon and Tony, it might be me and Peter Mandelson, it might be... You know, there's just these sort of tensions going on the whole time, which were unbelievably frustrating and very, very exhausting. Today's humiliation for George Robertson marks the party's third change of policy in as many months. People will forget this, but one of the biggest arguments of that period was when Tony was basically adamant that if we were going to do Scottish devolution, there had to be a referendum. And that sounds obvious now, but at the time it was like a massive conflagration and the party in Scotland went crazy and the Scottish media went crazy. So what are we to make of the mess? The seats of the disarray really lie not in
3: Labour's devolution plans, but in the party's taxation policy.
7: So all of these things were playing out, but it was all part of this sort of endless obsessiveness that we all shared of trying to get things sorted as we got nearer and
2: nearer to the campaign. And of course, it wasn't just internal conflicts within the party that were going on. The party was also fighting with its traditional backers.
7: Potentially embarrassing challenges taking shape for the week ahead on his policies and on his party management.
5: One meeting at the TUC, where Tony was there as leader and I was there of, as Shadow Secretary of State for Employment, and I put forward my presentation as how we should go to a low-pay commission and not have half-male median earnings. They were in rampant opposition to it.
3: It's the bid to fix the minimum wage at £4.15 pence an hour. Tony Blair has always insisted that the rate shouldn't be settled until after Labour are in
5: government but the votes of the big unions are lining up against him. So we adjourned to sit in different rooms. It's a very TUC-like thing to do. And Tony said, if it's a question of there being a row or a fudge, I'd rather have a... And at this point, I was, like, poised. (laughs) What is it going to be? But, I mean, I should have known. A row. And that's the thing about Tony, is that he knew that the public needed clarity. And therefore, we had to have the internal rows... In order that we could have clarity with the public.
2: So, this was the bomb detonation that David Miliband was speaking about and which Blair was so keen on. For many in the Labour movement, though, as Harriet Harman was saying, you could tell it was far simpler than bomb detonation. It was selling out. Back in 96, were people accusing you of being policy light?
1: All the time we were being accused of being, oh, well, you're new Labour, that means that, you know, you've dropped socialism, you don't stand for anything anymore. You're just a media confection, you just say and do anything to appeal to the voters. Blair, well, Blair's Bambi. He doesn't really stand for anything. He couldn't say boo to a goose. He just sort of charms everyone, gets them into a room, says what they want to hear, and then comes out, you know, pretending that everyone's sort of singing from the same hymn sheet. But actually, they have no idea what is on the hymn sheet. I mean, this was said constantly by the right-wing media and then of course as usual echoed by the broadcasters
6: the word socialism though has disappeared amid the glitz of team photos and credit card style policy summaries
2: and by the way it wasn't just the substance that's being ripped up at this point labour's entire style of campaigning was changing too
3: there is a big idea here it is about creating a society that is genuinely one nation in which we seek to realise the potential of all our people.
2: That's maybe a bit cheesy now, but you've got to remember that illustrating party broadcasts with computer graphics and setting them to pop music, all of that felt revolutionary at the time. Get
5: out there, within within your organisations, within the workplace, within your neighbourhoods, within your communities, and represent labour.
2: And the tactics were changing too. Out went public disagreements over policy, in came hardcore message discipline. Out went paper records in this new age of technology, in came a new computer system. Labour moved its entire operation into a single open plan office in Millbank Tower, where young staffers such as a future MP Liam Byrne could monitor rolling news and issue instant reaction to anything they disliked.
4: We had this fabled unit called the Rapid Rebuttal Unit, And the dirty secret of the rapid rebuttal unit is that it had this big IT system in the middle called the Excalibur database that was a secret weapon, and and it didn't work.
2: (laughs) Well, eventually, Bern and his colleagues did help fix the glitches, and it wasn't long before the system was paying off.
4: Basically, we had built this kind of enormous electronic library that was just incredibly searchable, but crucially, it had all the right information in it. And so... What we were able to do is take the Tory dossier, which was pretty big, if I remember, and just go through it line by line and do a couple of things. So, one, we were able to track back to Tory literature, Tory leaflets that had gone out, Tory documents from think tanks that had gone out, and obviously we had a complete record of everything that we had said on everything. So, in the past, trying to knit something like that together would have taken a couple of days, and you'd have had to go through papers and heaven knows what else. And, you know... The system that we built meant that we could just do it in hours.
2: This new, more efficient backroom operation still is remembered today. It also allowed Alistair Campbell and his team of spinners to get their message out quickly and ruthlessly. In the end, you became famous for having quite a combative approach, I think, to Fleet Street and the lobby perhaps, Did it feel that way in 96? Were you standing up in a way that former communications directors hadn't to journalists and their editors? Or were you having to be a bit softer in your approach at the time? Um, Look, we were
7: going to take a different approach to the media. No doubt about that. I think a lot of my thinking on it was formed by having been a journalist on the Mirror, watching the way the rest of the media operated in relation to Neil Kinnock and, and before him to Michael Foote. And I was absolutely determined that was not going to happen. It wasn't a deliberate thing. I didn't want to go around sort of having fights the whole time. But part of it was to make sure the media understood that if they were going to write crap day after day after day, I was going to call it out. For some of the newspapers on the right, at the simultaneously we were trying to court them. We were trying to neutralise them, essentially. But sometimes that meant calling them out publicly.
5: The Murdoch press had been monstering us Election in, election out. And Tony went off to a Murdoch-sponsored conference somewhere in the South Pacific or wherever it was in order to do whatever it took to actually get them off our back. And the idea for Labour Party activists of seeing a Labour leader consorting with Murdoch, absolutely, they were horrified.
0: Tony Blair has been actively courting Rupert Murdoch even travelling to the other side of the world to speak to a conference of his executives. While there may be no overt deal to win over the Sun, Rupert Murdoch was reassured by Labour's stance on the Broadcasting Act. The party opposed restrictions on owning both newspapers and TV stations.
7: I didn't feel terribly comfortable about some of the things we had to do to sort of keep the Murdoch press broadly on board. But, you know, I remember Tony saying, look, if you've got a dog in the corner and you worried it might have rabies, you know, you want to keep it in the corner. <laughs> and that's kind, of, that's kind of how we how we viewed it. But when we went out to Australia to see Murdoch and Tony, you know, it was pretty controversial at the time. Tony spoke to all the, editor, the news international editors who were out there. And Paul Keating was Australian prime minister at the time, and we spent some time with him beforehand. And I remember him saying something I thought very revealing. He says, look, the thing you've got to remember about Rupert he said his his first number one interest is Rupert, number two interest is Rupert, number three interest is Rupert, business interest, then he's got the family and the rest of it doesn't really matter.
2: Well, of course, Rupert now has stepped back, at least a step, but his family still remains in charge. And so the question for Keir Starmer and his current Labour Party is how can they get the Murdoch Empire back on side?
7: You know, probably the single most important thing is that you get them to think that you're going to win.
3: Friends, colleagues.
2: Coming up. This week, Keir Starmer gets to make what will almost certainly be his final conference speech before an election. So what did Blair do with his in 1996?
3: This year, we meet as the opposition... Next year, the British people willing, an end to 18 years of the Tories, and we will meet as the new Labour government of Britain.
0: (laughs) Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard.
2: Okay, we're in September 1996. We're in the seaside town of Blackpool. This is Labour's last chance to show to the public who they really are. Now, everyone knows that an election is coming, and this is going to be the final conference before it. It's a stage to take all of those ideas, all of those policies and this new way of communicating and to blend them into a major political speech that is going to propel Blair towards a winning campaign.
6: We were back in Blackpool, which was the scene of our Clause 4 speech of two years Before an incredible uh, conference hall absolutely packed to the rafters, Um, it was always incredibly nerve-shredding because it was still in the days of printers and floppy disks and all-night speech-making sessions and making sure that we don't say things that are wrong and making sure
7: that we cover every angle. We put a lot of work into those speeches. I mean, of all the speeches, the conference speeches were the ones where, you know, a lot of late nights, a lot of kind of agonising, a lot of endless arguments about, you know, literally
2: two words.
3: We are on the same side, the same team, and Britain United will win.
2: And after all of that, all of the internal rows, all of the courting of the press, what exactly was it that Blair was presenting to the nation?
3: Ask me my three main priorities for government. And I tell you, education, education, and education.
1: What it was also able to do was to demonstrate that we were the party of aspiration. Absolutely central to New Labour, to Blair's Credo, and and how we were positioning our appeal to the country uh, as a whole. And because we were so committed to aspiration, we were going to use that escalator of education to uh, enable people to realise their potential, to realise uh, uh, their dreams.
2: As Mandelson and Miliband both told me, they didn't want to appear triumphalist. But the country was in a good mood. England's footballers had done well at the Euros and Blair did want to tap into just a bit of that.
3: 17 years of hurt never stopped us dreaming. Labour's coming home. As we did in 45 and 64. I know that was then, but it could be again. Labour's coming home.
2: Blackpool was a success. The papers afterwards showed Blair getting a long-standing ovation in the conference hall and even twirling his wife Cherie around the dance floor afterwards. But what struck me talking to people around him at the time is that they were still incredibly unsure about what was to come for them over the next few months.
7: We were a very curious mix of being confident, feeling we had the right arguments, that Tony was the right guy to take the party into, into the election and to be prime minister. We had a pretty good team. So I think we had that confidence, but at the same time, we were deliberately very nervous about all the things that could go wrong.
2: Now all that remained was for the Prime Minister John Major to go ahead and finally call the election.
3: Good morning, I'd like to formally confirm that I've seen Her Majesty the Queen this morning and sought her permission for a dissolution of Parliament and a general election on the 1st of May.
2: That's all coming tomorrow in part two. And you can follow rolling coverage of the Labour Party conference from Liverpool this week at theguardian.com. I'm Kieran Stacey. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff and Sammy Kent. The sound designer was Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon
6: does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon.